Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13 this morning. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. When Jesus heard what? When Jesus heard the news of the death of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, tragic death, unnecessary death, all for the wrong reasons, as we saw last week. But when Jesus heard that, he departed from that place by boat to a deserted place by himself. No doubt, in part, to just get alone and get perspective after hearing that particular news, difficult news to hear. Now in Mark's account, the cross-reference, we also read that Jesus, when he went, invited his disciples to come with him to a deserted place to rest a while because things had become very, very busy. And we also see from verse 13 that the multitudes, when they heard that Jesus had left to go to the other side of the lake, They followed him and joined him. John's gospel tells us that they followed him because they saw the signs. And the signs that he had performed on those that had been sick. So they were very much interested in a specific thing from Jesus. They wanted what he would do for them. And so just put yourself in Jesus' position here. You've just heard about the death of John... You are at the direction of the Father, going to a different place by yourself. You're, you're alone. The disciples are tagging along from a distance. And as you reach that shore on the other side, you see the multitudes that had heard about your journey to the other side. What's your reaction? I can tell you what my reaction would be. I see the multitudes. I have a desire to get alone and be by myself for a while, to rejuvenate, to get perspective, and I see the multitudes. My reaction would be to find a place to hide, get away from these people, or have them get away from me as quickly as possible. But that wasn't Jesus' response. Jesus' response is so unlike me in the natural. In verse 14, it says, When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude And he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Jesus' response, very unlike our natural human response, he was moved with compassion for these multitudes, and he ministered to them. He healed their sick. You know, it requires that we have Jesus in order to act like Jesus. If I'm going to be Christ-like in relationship to people and have compassion on people rather than be annoyed by people, I need Jesus. I need to come to him and be honest and say, Lord, here's my tendency. This is what I want to do. I want to run and hide and get out of Dodge. But I know that's not what you would do, and I know that's not what you would have me to do necessarily, so I ask you for strength and for the ability that you provide to enable me to be a blessing as you are to people. We need Jesus to act like Jesus, to live like Jesus. It's impossible without Jesus. 
He was compassionate for them. His heart was moved deeply. And the word comes from a Greek word which means to be struck and touched in the very depth of your bowels. That was the idea behind compassion in those days, is that it was felt down deep. We say our heart was touched. They would say our bowels were touched. That's the difference between the way they saw it. It was deeper than just a surface kind of a feeling. He really did empathize to the nth degree for these unfortunate people. So he ministered to them. Just like he had compassion on them who weren't deserving of it, so also he has compassion on us. We also are not obviously deserving of it. But he loves us. He cares about us. He thinks about us. He's, uh, as the writer to the Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is not able to be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he in all points as we are was tempted yet without sin. He has compassion on us. He relates to us. He connects with us. He feels what we feel. And that's a wonderful understanding and truth about our Lord. Well, it tells us in verse 15 that when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. A natural sort of a response on the part of the disciples. Send the multitudes away. They can buy food out there wherever they might go, and they can thus provide for themselves. But Jesus said to them, verse 16, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now we're going to come to the story of the feeding of the 5,000 men. This is a unique story in that it has been recorded in all four of the Gospels, one of those miracles where it was recorded in all four of the Gospels, showing that it was significant. Now, when Jesus told them that they were to give these people something to eat, when he addressed the disciples that way, John's Gospel tells us that it was a test of their faith. He had actually said to Philip uh, in a question form, Philip, where should we buy bread that these may eat? And John tells us that he said this to Philip to test him. But he himself knew what he was going to do. So what would Philip come up with? What would the disciples come up with when they heard a question like that or a statement like that? Where should we buy bread that these may eat? What would their thinking process be? Uh, Jesus knew what he was going to do. What would they come up with? Now, had they been on their A-game, and of course we don't expect that of them because they were developing in their faith just like we are, hopefully. But had they been on their A-game, they could have said, well, we've been in tight places before with Jesus. We've been in situations where we had no solution and we didn't know what to do, but he always seems to know what to do and he always comes through with some kind of supernatural effort to make it happen. So let's just put it back on him. Jesus has just asked us the question, where should we buy bread that, that these may eat? Let's just put it back on him. Jesus, how about you making some bread? How about you feeding them? I mean, it's been done before, the wilderness wanderings. God did it every single day, six days a week, 
for 40 years. Fed them with manna, this supernatural, perfect food that came down and lay there on the ground. And they would gather as much as they needed for that particular day. And on Friday, they would gather as much as they needed for that day and the Sabbath day, which came next. And this was something that happened for 40 years. The food was perfectly engineered by God to be the complete food. It had all the nutrients in it that were necessary, all of the proteins, all of the vitamins, everything that was necessary to sustain great health for 40 years. And it was all there. Now, God had done it before. Why couldn't Jesus do it now? Had they been on their A-game, maybe they would have come up with something like that. But again, we don't expect that of them. Just like we probably don't expect that of ourselves. But they could have. They could have. But Jesus surprised them by saying, you give them something to eat. Now this is going to be a huge experience for them. Absolutely life changing. These disciples are actually going to be used by Jesus participating with him in a miracle to feed these multitudes. And they're never going to forget this experience. Because it's not going to be long from this time when they're going to be faced with the multitudes in a different way. Jesus is going to be in heaven after his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. He's going to be in heaven. And they're going to be here on the earth expected to lead the next thing God wants to do in the human race. It's going to be on them. They're going to have many multitudes to feed, not necessarily physically, but spiritually. To lead them to Christ and then disciple them into faith, to grow them up, to oversee this growing and burgeoning church that was developing there in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then unto the uttermost parts of the world, they were going to be in charge. So this lesson of feeding the 5,000 is going to be huge for them. They're going to go back to it again and again and again in their minds as evidence of the way Jesus wants to use them to feed the people right then and there. It would set the tone for them because they'd be the ones feeding the multitudes. So they responded to Jesus the way we typically respond. Verse 17, and they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. That's what we do. We look around at our own resources. We look around at what we have. There's a job to be done. There's a task to be fulfilled. There's a need to be met. So what do we do? We look to our own resources. We see how much money we have in the bank, how much ability we have, how much time we have. And we limit ourselves of being of any help because we're only looking to our own resources. And we've limited ourselves in really being a part of God's program because we're only looking to ourselves. And that's what they did. We have five loaves. We have two fish. Very limited resources and certainly not nearly enough to get the job done. So how does Jesus respond to that? Verse 18, he said, bring them here to me. Bring, bring what you have to me. Oh, there's the key right there. Bring what you have to me. Bring it to me, Jesus would say, bring it to me and surrender it before me. Surrender it to me in worship. 
Surrender it to me in confession and in brokenness and recognize that you don't have what it takes. Bring it here to me. And what I'll do is what he did here. He'll bless it, he'll break it, and he'll give it to the disciples and he'll distribute it to the multitude. That's what he does. Those are his ways. Bring them here to me. Bring what you have to me and watch what I can do with it. Bring what you have to me. Bring yourselves. Bring your resources. Bring your assets. Bring your time. Bring your, your talents. Bring your possessions. Bring it all to me and see what I can do with it if you've truly surrendered it to me. Just watch what I can do in your life. That's the idea. So Jesus now has in his possession this meager presentation of five loaves and two fish. Thousands of people are sitting before him. And he commanded the multitudes, verse 19, to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So he commanded them to sit down on the grass. We use this passage as an illustration when we do our inductive Bible study seminars particularly in developing countries. And we're trying to train pastors and Christian workers and leaders in how to study the Bible and how to teach from it. And so we start from this passage and we show them that they need to to come to Jesus with their Bibles to feed the people spiritually. They need to come to Jesus with their Bibles and they need to present what they understand of the Word to Him. They need Jesus to bless the word and to break the word and then give the word back to them so that they can distribute it to the people. That's what every teacher, every minister of the word needs. We need to present the word before the Lord so that the Lord can bless the word, break the word, distribute the word back to us, and we can then feed it to the people. That's what's needed. That would I have received from the Lord, that I also delivered to you, Paul said. And that's what we need, is to receive it from the Lord and then deliver it to the people. That's the need of everyone who handles the scriptures and teaches and feeds the people of God. And we also point out that Jesus commanded them to sit down on the grass. In Mark's Gospel in chapter 6, it specifies green grass. So we tell them, what kind of a minister are you? Are you a minister that feeds the people from green grass, from grass that's been watered well and grass that has been exposed to abundant sunshine, grass, fruitful grass? Or are you a minister that feeds the people from brown grass, dead grass? And we use that as an illustration of the way many receive their sermon material. You know, they go to already brown grass. They hear a sermon online or they read a commentary and they regurgitate exactly what somebody else has said, but it hasn't passed through their own life and their own heart first. But we want the people to feed from green grass, nourishing grass, 
that will be of some help to some people. And so the story develops that way. He blessed the five loaves and the two fish. He broke them. He gave the loaves to the disciples. And just imagine them bringing their baskets to Jesus. Jesus fills up their baskets, and then they carry them out into the crowd, pass out the food, bring it back to Jesus. It all repeats itself over and over again until 5,000 men, not counting with women and children, so many thousands, 10, 12, 15,000 people perhaps, maybe more, were fed as a result of Jesus just blessing and breaking and redistributing this food to the people. That's a picture of how the Lord wants to work in our lives when we bring what we have to him. Now, the story is also a messianic fulfillment passage. As David Guzik points out, it shows that Jesus could feed the people of God even as Israel was fed in the wilderness. There was a common expectation that the Messiah would restore the provision of manna. And this adds to the messianic credentials of Jesus. In other words... There was a certain messianic expectation that when the Messiah comes, he would begin to feed the people en masse like they had been fed in the wilderness wanderings. Jesus is doing it now, so could this deed indeed be the Messiah? And of course, this is a demonstration that he, he is and was the Messiah. We bring what we have, what's been given to us, to Jesus, get him to bless it. He wants to bless it. So the question is, what have you been given? Can you identify it? Have you been brought to Jesus? Twelve baskets of fragments were brought up. Twelve apostles were serving the Lamb. Twelve individual baskets of reminders of Jesus' faithfulness. They'll never forget it. They'd never forget it. Then it tells us, verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. He made, notice that, he made his disciples get into the boat. It was a commandment. And of course, Jesus commands disciples. He directs them. He orders them. He tells them what to do. And if they're true disciples, they're going to do what he says. Jesus asked the question earlier in Matthew, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things which I say? So disciples hear commands from Jesus, and true disciples do what Jesus said. So he made his disciples get into the boat. While he went up into the mountain to pray. John tells us again in chapter 6 of his gospel that these signs that Jesus was doing had created sort of a hysteria regarding him being the king. And so there was a group that were actually seeking Jesus to, by force, make him and force him to become king. This wasn't his purpose in his first coming, not in an earthly sense. That's coming. His second coming, he'll be the actual, literal, earthly and ruling king. Just read Isaiah chapter 2 or Psalm 72 for some examples of Jesus as he reigns as our king. 
But Jesus, when he learned that they were about to make him king by force, John tells us he departed into the mountain to pray. It's interesting, Jesus prayed. Why did Jesus pray? He prayed, first of all, because he needed to do so. Never forget that Jesus voluntarily set aside the exercise of his divine attributes and he became a human being. And as a human being, Jesus prayed because he needed to pray, just like you and I pray because we need to pray. The Father had something that Jesus needed, and Jesus could only get it from the Father and only could experience power and direction from him, and so he prayed. He needed to pray as we need to pray. But he also prayed because he wanted to pray. For Jesus, it was the joy of his life, and it was the 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 blessing of his day. He would rise up early in the morning and depart to a solitary place, and he would pray. Not because it was part of his duty, like this is what you do if you're Messiah. Your official job description is up early at O Dark Hundred and pray. That wasn't the job description of, of Messiah's. It wasn't because of that. It wasn't because he had to. It was because he wanted to. He treasured and valued this connection that he had with his father. He wanted to spend time with him. He would define eternal life later as knowing God, the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom the Father had sent. That's what eternal life was. And to know God and to commune with him in prayer was the joy and delight of his life. We can have different kinds of relationships with God. We can have a relationship with God where it's basically official and it's all business. You know, I mean, I report in when I've got something to do and I need his help. And so I report for duty and prayer and I ask him to help me and then I move on and I, I go and do it. Or I can have a relationship with God where it's a more more on a friendly term where we're communicating with each other and sharing life and talking about things that are going on throughout the day, and that's wonderful. And then there's a relationship with God where it's adoration, where it's love. It's real love. I'm in love with him, and he's in love with me. And I find it my prayer, Lord, don't just let me have a business relationship with you. I'm so prone toward that. And Lord, don't let me just limit it to a friendship kind of a relationship with you, Lord, but teach me what it means to just be madly in love with you as you are with me. Jesus was in love with his Father. Jesus was deeply friends with his Father in that way. And Jesus, of course, relied on his Father for everything. So he had it all. He prayed because he wanted to. He also prayed at this time because he knew his disciples were going to be going through a time of testing that he had sent them into. And he was praying for them during that time. So it tells us that he went into a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening come, he was alone there. That's about 6 p.m. But the boat the disciples were in was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves because the wind was contrary. Waves, wind, these are pictures of trials that come in our lives, testings that come into our lives. And so Jesus had done what? He had sent the 
the disciples commanded them to get into a boat and go before him to the other side. He had sent them into a situation where now the wind and the waves were whipping up. He sent them into trouble. He sent them into a trial. And so he's up in the mountain. He could see these things, especially if it was a moonlit night. And the moon shining there on the Sea of Galilee would have easily exposed these disciples in their efforts to try to get across that lake, rowing against the wind and rowing with waves and water flying up everywhere. And Jesus is seeing all this. He's watching it. He sent them into it on purpose. And he's praying for them during their time of trial. And I understand that doesn't square with a lot of our theologies. We think that if Jesus sends us into something and calls us to do something, it's smooth sailing. Glassy seas, no wind, and if anything, a wind behind us to push us along the way. Not necessarily so. Sometimes the Lord sends us into things that are just manifestly hard. But he doesn't do us to hurt us. He does it to test us. Where is our faith going to be when it's tough in life and ministry? Upon what or upon whom are we going to rely? That's the question. That's the issue. And Jesus was testing his disciples. There's no doubt about it. And it tells us that in the fourth watch of the night, verse 25, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And just figure out the chronology here. It was evening when he was alone and they were straining at rowing in the middle of the, of the lake, around 6 p.m. or so. And then he finally comes to them walking on the sea in the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's been hours that these men have been out there on that lake, hours rowing against the wind and against the waves, hours suffering and worrying and wondering, and some of them seasoned fishermen. They knew the dangers of that lake during stormy sea conditions. Why did he wait so long? Why was it that he didn't come immediately? What was going on in their hearts during those hours of testing? Had Jesus forgotten about them? Some people in a situation like this would say, yes, Jesus has forgotten about me. Had Jesus abandoned them? It wasn't a case of forgetting. It's a case of abandonment. He's turned his back on us. Some would come to that conclusion. But that's not an option either. Not if you know Jesus. He doesn't forget us, and he doesn't abandon us. Well, what then is it? What does explain the long gap between their struggle and his coming to them? Again, it's just a test of faith. And sometimes we have to row for a long time until that place where we run out of gas. Been there? Done that? Experienced that? We run out of our own energy, our own inertia, our own plans, our own schemes. And finally, it's finally come to this. Finally, we've arrived at that place 
that gets us on our knees. And we say, okay, I give up. It's your turn, Lord. (laughs) I give up. It's your turn, Lord. Sometimes it's hard to get to that place with proud, self-sufficient humanoids like we. Man, it's tough. It's hard to be human. A lot of pitfalls (laughs) in being a human being. But the Lord is good, and he's faithful. And he did come to them sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. That's the key. He did come to them. They'd already rode three or four miles, but they were stuck at that point. Interesting that Mark's gospel adds this little point that when Jesus came to them, he would have passed them by. He would have just walked right on by when he came to them. And just passed him right on by and just gone all the way to the shore. He would have done that. What was he waiting for? What did he want? My opinion, I think he wanted them to cry out to him. Say, Lord, we've been wondering when you were going to show up and you come. We cry out to you now, Lord, rescue us from this situation. He wanted to see if they were expecting him or not. Let's see if they were. Let's look at the story. Were they expecting Jesus? So he came to them, walking on the sea, verse 25. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out for fear. So let's answer the question. Were they expecting Jesus? Doesn't seem like it. Doesn't seem like it. And that always happens when the wind and the waves overtake our view of Jesus. Somehow we don't see him anymore, and we're not looking for him. But what we do see and what we do feel are the wind and the waves. Wow, how easy it can happen. Jesus didn't want to keep him in that position of fear. He immediately spoke to them. Note that word immediately. Jesus immediately spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Oh, praise the Lord for his comforting word. You've been in that place where things have just been crazy. Fear, crying out in fear, superstitions. It's a ghost. Weird thoughts come into the mind. Weird conclusions that we draw about all kinds of weird and bizarre scenarios. And then the Lord cuts through all that and says, don't be afraid. It is I. Ah, that's what I needed. Oh, how I needed to hear that voice. That voice cuts through it all, doesn't it? That voice of Jesus, it just cuts through it all. And then everything can become calm and make sense again. It is I, do not be afraid, he said. Well, they were afraid, they were troubled because they hadn't expected to see him. They weren't operating in faith at this time. But now their fears were dealt with. Verse 28, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, in the Greek text it's a little stronger, Lord, since it is you, Command me to come to you on the water. Let's stop there. 
I think this is one of the greatest things that Peter ever said. This is great. I mean, he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus commended him for that confession. Peter said, Lord, explain the parable to us. That's a great thing that Peter said. But here he says, Lord, since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I think this is a great thing that Peter said. What Peter figured was that if Jesus could walk on water, obviously he could, he was doing it. If Jesus could walk on water, and since it was him, then Jesus could make Peter walk on water too. That's what he was thinking. Jesus, you can walk on water, and since it's you, you can enable me to walk on water. So since it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Implications of that, staggering. Anything the Lord is able to do, if he wants me to do it, he'll enable me to do it too. Does he want me to do a miracle on somebody? Well, then he can enable me to do it. He wants me to live the Christian life? Impossible. Can't be done, not with human strength. But he lives the Christian life. He is the quintessential Christian. He's the only one that's ever done it perfectly. He can enable me to do it. Right? So anything he can do, Peter reasoned, he can walk on water. He can enable me to walk on water too. I think this is very sound thinking. I think this is how faith thinks. Faith thinks like this. Do you think like this? Faith thinks like this. Faith doesn't look to our own resources first. Faith looks to Jesus to find his resources. Where is Jesus in this? What is he capable of doing? That's what faith does. And I think this is a great thing that Peter said. And so Jesus responded with one word, come, in verse 29. And when Peter had come down out of the boat... He walked on the water to go to Jesus. Aren't you proud of Peter? I mean, Jesus walked on the water. Job 9.8 says this is proof of the fact that he's God. Jesus walked on water. But now Peter's walking on water. Can you think of any other scriptural examples where that's happened? I can't. Jesus and Peter only walked on the water. Way to go, Peter. Peter. This is tremendous. Peter's walking on the water. Mighty step of faith out of that boat. Imagine what you'd feel like. Your foot begins to touch the water. and Ooh, look at that. My weight's being supported. The other foot touches the water. Whoa, happened twice. Start to walk. This is good. This is good. He's walking on the water. Yay, Peter. Way to go. I commend him for it. Don't you wish the story stopped here? See, you know what's going to happen here. And this is where Peter gets criticized all the time. I'm not going to criticize him because I'm going to see him in heaven someday and I don't want to get rebuked. I can understand, though. Verse 30, when he saw the wind was boisterous and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. So there's no question. 
what happened was the wind, being as loud as it was and as tumultuous as it was, caused Peter to be afraid all over again. And he started to sink. But again, good job, Peter. What does he do? He says, Lord, save me. He's got the message. Let's turn to Jesus in times like this. Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? When he got into the boat, the wind ceased. This blows my mind in one sense because Peter, according to tradition, was a large man. We don't know what large meant. I mean, in those days, if you were six feet, you were a very large man. Well, let's just say six foot, 200 plus. Jesus reaches down with his hand, not with his hands, doesn't need both arms, reaches down with his hands and right out of the water. Peter sopping wet, all those clothing making, making him, you know, 100 pounds heavier than he really was. Jesus just lifts him up out of the water, brings him into the boat with him, saves him. And then he asks him this one question. He says, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? What a piercing question. Why did you doubt? Have you ever asked yourself that if you failed a lesson of faith and then the Lord has come through and you look back on it in hindsight and you say, well, he really did come through. He really did deliver me and rescue me. Did you ever ask yourself the question at that moment, Bill, why did you doubt? What was that about? Why did you doubt? How come you didn't believe that thing that you should have believed? It's a piercing question. And the only reason someone would doubt in this or in any situation is that somehow, somehow, God became small to that person. That's what happened. Somehow, God became small to Peter. Somehow, the wind and the sound of it and the waves and the feel of them like the moon in front of the sun during a time of an eclipse, somehow the wind and the waves eclipsed what, Jesus, what Peter knew to be true about Jesus. And Jesus became small in Peter's mind. And he couldn't believe any longer because his eyes were now on a small Jesus who is impotent, can't do much of anything, can't help anybody, can't keep me above water, can't enable me to continue walking on the water. You see, that's what happens when Jesus becomes small. Then the supernatural thing he was helping us to do doesn't happen anymore. Why did you doubt? We doubt when God becomes small. We doubt when Jesus becomes small. Is there any rational reason to doubt in situations like this? I don't think so. I mean, someone would say, well, yeah, I had a cousin who told me that God doesn't do these things anymore. Well, is that a reason to doubt the Lord because you had a cousin who said to you that God doesn't do these things anymore? Or I remember a circumstance five years ago where something happened and I didn't get delivered immediately and so I didn't get delivered immediately then. Why would he deliver me now? So you're questioning God's faithfulness, but did he eventually deliver you? You have a pulse. You're alive. You're still here. 
course he delivered you. We question God's faithfulness. We question his history with us. We question whether or not he really wants to help us. We question whether he's able to help us. And each one of those questions shrink Jesus in our minds. We, they shrink God in our minds. And by the time the whole process is over with, God is so small, he can't do a single thing. When in reality, he's the one that created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that's in them. There's nothing impossible for God. If we have the right-sized God in our mind, then we don't doubt. If we have a small-sized version of God, then we do. How do we build up our faith in who God is? The Bible. Knowing God through his word. In this Bible are exceedingly great and precious promises that through them we might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. The promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, Paul writes. It's the promises. It's the word of God. The word of God reveals the nature of God, what he's actually like. How does he behave in certain situations? What are his ways? See, we rely upon the word of God, and we also rely upon his history with us. Certainly, there's something that we've experienced in the past that we can draw upon and use in this circumstance that we're in right now as a reminder of his faithfulness. See, we've, we're built up. We're built up in fellowship with one another. We're built up in prayer. And as we're built up with our histories, as we're built up in the word, as we're built up in prayers, we're built up in fellowship, then God becomes the size he needs to be in our minds. And we don't doubt. We remain strong in faith. And as was said of Abraham, we give glory to God. Spurgeon wrote, our doubts are unreasonable. Wherefore didst thou doubt? If there be reason for little faith, there is evidently reason for great confidence. If it be right to trust Jesus at all, why not trust him altogether? I like that kind of thinking. Well, then they got into the boat, verse 32, and the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Something they had believed before, but now it was confirmed to them once again in a very powerful way. And when they had crossed over, further deeds of compassion and power, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. This is the level of faith that was alive at that time. They felt that if they could only touch the hem of his garment, remember that woman with the issue of blood? If they could only touch the hem of his garment, they'd be healed. That was the level of faith that was alive at that time. And when they did it, they were healed. The hem of his garment became a point of contact for their faith. 
touching it. Their faith was released. Okay, 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 I'm going to be healed. Maybe get healed. It's going to happen. He's able to do it. Touch, touch, touch. Healed. I can feel it. Healed. Point of contact for their faith. That's what happened to them. They were made perfectly well. Lots of lessons in today's text. The lesson of our need for prayer. To follow in Jesus' footsteps and example. Many of the older commentators use the phrase secret prayer. The desire and need we have for secret prayer. I like the phrase. Time alone with Jesus. The need for obedience. He commanded that they get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. The need for obedience of Jesus as Lord. Is there anything that you're wrestling with the Lord about right now? And you're saying, not so, Lord. Those words don't go together, you know. Not so, Lord. The realization that the Lord may send us into difficulty even in the fulfillment of his will. But if that happens, he'll be on the mountain watching us, praying for us all the while. He hasn't abandoned us. The fact that the eye of faith must be exercised, that we might see Jesus in all things, even when we would least expect to see him coming across the water. It's a ghost. And they were terrified. But what if we have the eye of faith and we see Jesus? Then we're expecting to see him. There he is. There's Jesus. Look at him walking on the water. Isn't that cool? Peter walking on the water. There's another lesson. I think it's a picture of the Christian life. The Christian life is impossible without Jesus. But he enables us to do what he does when we trust him. The excitement of trusting Jesus for radical things. Lord, since it's you, command that I come to you on the water. That's a radical thing. The excitement of it. Taking steps that don't make sense. And then, of course, realizing there's no need to doubt the Lord. Not if we build ourselves up in our most holy faith, as Jude writes. Not if we stay in the word. Not if we remain encouraged through prayer and fellowship and Recollection of our own histories. No reason to fall into seasons of doubt that last long at all. We can continue to trust the Lord. Lord, we thank you for these lessons, things that you taught your disciples in those days. Strong lessons that by the Spirit they felt compelled to record in sacred scripture. And now we read them, and now we're discipled through them. We're being trained through the very things that you trained the 12 with. And we thank you for that. And so, Lord, we are grateful that you are who you are and that you do what you do. And each of us can confess very easily that our faith has gotten very small many times, that we lost sight of you, been afraid by the things that have swelled around us. But that's only because we forgot about who you are and what you're capable of, what you're like. Thank you for your cleansing for that, Lord. Thank you for your washing us.
And at this time, if you have joined us in this meeting this morning and you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus, would you please know that he loves you? He cares about you. He died for you on the cross that you might have eternal life. And he's telling you, believe in me, trust in me, come to me. Let me come into your life and save you. Are you willing? Do you want that to happen? Do you want Jesus to come into your life and save you and begin to help you to live the right way? If that's you, shoot your hand up in the air, would you? I want to pray for you this morning. Anybody this morning? Here with us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. In our continuing of our worship, we're going to continue with our acts of faith, and we're going to present to the Lord part of what he's given to us. And, you know, as we give offerings to the Lord, and maybe you gave online, or maybe you give through check typically or some other way, as we give to the Lord, all we're doing, please know this, all we're doing is we're giving back to the Lord a portion of what he's given us. That's what we're doing. It really belongs to him. It doesn't really belong to us. So we take it right from the beginning. We take it off the top. We give to him the tenth. We give them the first fruits of our increase. We say, here it is, Lord, you've given it to me. And it's a step of faith, isn't it? It's a step of faith to give to the Lord that which he's given to us. It's a recognition that it's his. So it's worship as we give it back to him. It's praise as we give it back to him. And Lord, as we do give it back to you, we pray that you'd be glorified through these gifts through these tithes, through these offerings that we will receive for the glory of God. Give us wisdom, those that have responsibility to disperse these funds in Jesus' name. And all God's people said...